Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, I have a great guest with me today. Uh, Jennifer Wolf is in the building. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Buju Nindinwe Maganadug, Jennifer Wolf Nindishnakaz, Ishkwe Gijagunkwe, Nindigo Jibwamag, Waswaganing, Ishkonagoni, Nindunjiba, Wabasheshi Nindudim. I am Jennifer Wolf. I am from uh, Lactuflamba, Wisconsin, I'm, but uh, that's my Ojibwe side. But I'm also an enrolled member of the Ponca tribe. Um, my uh, so, quote unquote, Indian name is uh, Edge of Sky Woman, which is that little sliver of light that happens at dusk or dawn um, that represents a time of change. And I do embrace my role in this world as a change maker. Um, and finally, my uh, family clan um, is the Martin clan. And traditionally, those clans are handed down through your mother. Um, but because of um, you know, inter intertribal marriages and whatnot. That is actually my great grandmother's clan um, that we have just kind of embraced as a whole family unit. So thank oh, you for so having beautiful. me. That's here so today. cool. That is a traditional Ojibwa greeting. Ojibwa. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. And it's also that's, known that's... as Chippewa. Um, Chippewa. We also call ourselves okay. Anishinaabe. So. Okay, yep. that's the the fir first and last time through this conversation. I'm gonna try to say that because I'm not trying to be disrespectful. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, thank you so much. Um, before we get started into the conversation, can you tell the people a little bit more about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? Gosh, what gets me up in the morning? Um, I embrace my role as a mother, um, an indigenous person, um, a cisgender. Uh, female. I My pronouns are she, her, and hers, although my tribe doesn't use pronouns. So, um, just, you know, traditionally, that's not part of my traditional greeting um, and introduction. Right. But um, yes, I do want to be inclusive in the way I introduce myself. So those are my pronouns. Um, so I do greet the world um, with that positionality. Um, I was raised biculturally between the um, between a reservation setting and an urban setting. So uh, that also influences the way I greet the world. And somebody is now trimming weeds right outside my window. I might have to change locations. Can we um, put this on pause? I can't pause? hear it. So. You can't hear it? Okay, great. No, we're okay, good. Because he is right outside my window. <laughs> So yeah, I typically every morning, um, I do put my, as my mother has recommended for me, I, I put my feet on the ground. Some days during when it's snowy, I ask for forgiveness not to do that. 
<laughs> but I do um, try to spend part of my morning w- with um, actually connecting my body to the earth and remembering that I'm connected to everything and everyone. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, it, it's something so, you know, beautiful about that, about those traditions and that you're carrying them on, you know, you know what I mean? And, and still doing your thing there. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your journey? Like what influenced you? I know you're the founder of uh, Project Mosaic. So I would like to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what influenced that journey for you? Yeah, I um, initially started my college journey thinking I was going to be a physician um, and then heard a, um, a doctor named Lois Steele, who um, is from North Dakota, uh, talk about her journey as a healer and how she always had that calling to be a healer. And I had to reflect, I'm not a healer. <laughs> I didn't have that secret <laughs> calling, but yet I was still really good at science. So um, she was the keynote speaker at a conference I was attending. And um, as soon as she walked off the stage, I um, grabbed her and we went out into the hall and I, you know, cried on her shoulder and told her that I didn't have this sacred calling, but I didn't know what to do about um, being a scientist. And she said, be a scientist. That's easy. You you know, your family will be just as proud of you if you become a scientist as if you were a doctor. And um, so I was a chemist for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I did research on herbal compounds. And I always tried to find a way to bring my indigenous culture into whatever I was doing, even my role as a scientist. Um, so you know, I, I had these various chapters of my life where I was worked as a scientist and then I worked in uh, sales and then I worked in um, public health and um, diabetes prevention. And it just felt like I was assembling all these puzzle pieces to who I am um, that I didn't, when I started thinking about what sort of business I wanted to do and what skills I had, I felt like I am a mosaic in and of myself. Um, and then I started thinking about communities as being a mosaic as well. And how, um, gosh, there used to be this uh, schoolhouse rock episode that would play during Sunday morning cartoons called, uh, it was about the great American melting pot. And I always just thought that was such a gross concept to have like this people soup that was just all blended together. (laughs) You know, everyone's beautiful differences were being melted away. And I thought how much more beautiful is a mosaic where we think about each person as being a different color that, that adds to the beauty of the whole. And we think about different ways that we can piece together and um, complement one another. So that's kind of what, what uh, inspired me to um, start project mosaic to maybe um, do diversity, equity, and inclusion training um, in schools and hospitals about what a doctors or teachers need to know about the the their stakeholders who are of different colors. Right. No, that's that's real. And you know, you know, just you know, for me and for a lot of people, when we think disparities or the social determinants, it's you know, for me, it's, it's the, the African American or Black community. Mm-hmm. Um. But there, there are disparities in in, diff, in all communities. Oh my gosh! 
you you know and so from your perspective you know what do you see as some of the major disparities for indigenous americans you know when it comes to disparities <laughs> native americans and indigenous americans and uh, i use those terms interchangeably although indigenous people can apply to people from lots of different cultures maoris from the uh, new zealand um you know different tribal folks from africa or you know, all sorts of different places. You can be indigenous to wherever you live. But when I do say Native American and Indigenous American, I kind of use those interchangeably because we are living in the U.S. Um, but, you know, there's uh, the Sami tribe people from the Scandinavian countries. So um, anyway, just wanted to clarify that before I, I move on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Indigenous Americans, unfortunately, have some of the greatest health disparities. In fact, that impacts us according to the Indian Health Services that we have a life expectancy that is five and a half years less than all um, U.S. race populations together, 73 years compared to 78 and a half. Um, so, you know, we have super high rates of diabetes and um, heart disease and um you know, some of those are connected to our drastic changes from our traditional diets. We didn't have processed sugars and processed um, flour and all of these different things. Um, you know, most of us have one or two grains in our lives. We had, you know, dozens of grains that we brought into our diets, right. you know, 150 years ago. These are very uh, fast changes for us. And then you add on top of that um, educational disparities, uh, disproportionate poverty, um, access to health care issues, um, discrimination and de delivery of health services. My family has certainly experienced that. Um, and then generally cultural differences. And that all piles up on, um, you know, adding to that difference in life expectancy and those and those um, differences in diseases and um, one of the most concerning to me is um, suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for Native American youth ages 10 to 24. Um, and the Native youth teen suicide rates are about 3.5 times higher than the national average, according to the Center for Native American Youth. So um, that is one of those heartbreaking statistics that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, but um, certainly has impacted my family and, um, you know, a lot of people that I'm really close to. Yeah. And is something you, you said to me when we first spoke, just, just connecting and talking about the, just hoping you would be on the podcast is the, um, the lack of accurate data around some of these things and you know so you and you kind of touched on it a little bit but you know how does the lack of accurate data affect the ability to address health and social issues oh yeah when uh with these communities absolutely oftentimes we are aggregated with other populations asterisk as quote unquote other or left out of data altogether because um, oftentimes researchers want to show statistically significant differences before or after an intervention or between categories. And that because we have such low numbers, you know, anywhere from, you know, one to 3% of the population, uh, that it's often easier for them to just, um, you know, aggregate us or asterisk us or leave us out. So, um, 
that really renders us invisible, which is a huge problem because erasure is the modern form of racism for Native Americans when we're just ignored altogether. You know, a lot of educational curriculum doesn't cover um, Native Americans past the 1800s. If you ask um, a lot of Native Americans to, or a, a lot of um, Americans across the U.S. to name a famous Native American, they'll usually start rattling off some chiefs from the 1800s and and then um, double erasure for Native American women. (laughs) So Mm. I think, you know, fortunately we have folks like uh, and leaders, contemporary society, such as Deb Holland, our U.S. um, Secretary of the Interior. But, um, you know, our visibility is is um, is definitely a problem that affects us and including in, in health data, which affects how health care is delivered. Because if you take away our ability to make the case that there's even a crisis happening, you know, the, you can sweep these crises under the rug. Um, and that uh, takes away our ability to make the case for funding, for research, for program planning. Um, and it just affects us in every way. So I, I really uh, encourage um, researchers to, you know, ignore the, your ability to, to show statistically significant results in every single category. Yes, we're small. Um, make that your asterisk that this was a small number where we're reporting raw data, um, disaggregate, make statistical adjustments such as age adjustments. And then also, you know, um, look at ways to perform meta-analysis to look at data across many studies so that you can um, pool together some of that data. Yeah. So it, it just, it sounds like just lumping a group of people into one is just the, just, it's just the easier thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's such a problem and it, you know, it's, yeah. it's a problem for um, my colleagues and my PhD program at the university of North Dakota indigenous health PhD program um, who are native Hawaiian because often Asian and Pacific Islanders are lumped together. So when you're in Hawaii, they're, you've got, you know, a lot of Asian Americans who have high socioeconomic status and you've got um, the indigenous Hawaiians who have very different struggles and very different health in, in, uh, situations. So when they're all pooled together in data, that's a huge problem. And then in terms of data, um, sovereignty and governance, that's another issue. You know, so many researchers have come into indigenous communities and and been so extractive in their relationship um, with research where they wanted to study us because, you know, uh, we we do have all these huge health disparities. And so they want to test the worst of the worst. Um, But Mm. then they don't give us access to our own data. So you know, we're unable to see the, the, the back end of a lot of these studies so that we can um, plan our own interventions. And honestly, some of these solutions could best come from within. So if any research is happening in tribal communities or urban um, Native communities, um, you know, uh, the folks that helped you get that data should be partial owners of it and part of its governance as well. So are they just going into these communities with their their own thoughts and ideas on what's going to happen and what they're looking for with no regard for the the cultural aspect or some of some of those things that play a role in in someone's experience? Absolutely. And really just leaving without giving any solutions or you know, now what? 
So that's traditionally right. been how it's been, but slowly, slowly we're moving the needle as more natives are becoming researchers as well. Oh, that's that's good. It's it's unfortunate that you got to be in the role to see that happen, I guess, for, for me. But at least, you know, you're you're doing what you can. And, yeah. and you know, you know, staying within kind of that. Uh, I'm really into cultural competency, especially within healthcare and someone's healthcare experience. Um, can you share your thoughts on the cultural barriers that exist for indigenous or, or Native Americans in healthcare? And what steps can be taken to rebuild uh, that trust while respecting cultural heritage? Yeah, that mistrust is a huge one. And, mm. you know, we saw that really play out during the COVID pandemic, where you had a lot of attitudes of Native Americans um, saying, well, they're probably just doing research on us. And I'm sure, you know, that was the case on in African-American communities that we're not just going to do things just because the CDC or the government tells us to, because our relationship with the government has been fractured and, and harmful to us. Um, and we've had a, a lot of um, similar things to the African-American community where you all have the Tuskegee experiments. You know, we have a lot of experiments that were uh, conducted on children in boarding and residential schools um, where children were deliberately malnourished. Um, we also have a lot of incidences of forced sterilization. So those natural um, misgivings that we have for the government and healthcare care um, in general is well-founded. So we have to, if we want to um, address and make communication strategies or interventions uh, geared towards Native American, we have to acknowledge that and not belittle and, and paint Native Americans as being anti-science because we're very pro-science. We are some of the, you know, world's premier scientists who gave the, the world agricultural gifts, who gave the world, um, you know, a lot of... Uh, innovation and, and know-how in almost every, um, right. every aspect of society. So um, respecting that indigenous knowledge and um, our ability to find our own solutions is going to help um, rebuild that trust and also acknowledging the harms of the past. Um, and then also realizing that sometimes the, the messengers are going to come from within we're going to listen to our own community members. If it's our own elders asking us right. to get vaccinated or whatever the case may be to, to get healthy, then we're probably going to listen to that person more than just someone in a white coat. Um, and then also just being patient with indigenous patients. Um, relationships take time. So, uh, you know, often when healthcare providers come in and meet a new native patient, they uh, don't take the time to talk about where they came from and who they are. And that positionality is so important to build trust um, because we all have families, we all have culture, um, you know, whether that's from Germany or, or whatever. And, and if you right. take some time to talk about who your people are and where you're coming from, then that helps build that trust. And um, because we can see that, that you are someone that that's coming into this relationship with a desire for reciprocity. Right. So, you know, question, given your, um, your background in public health and also um, the native American yourself, you know, being that's your community, uh, you find it easy or is it difficult to to navigate you know I'm, I'm sure people see see you or you're saying hey 
the, the, this is what the data says. Yeah. And is it is it hard for you to get through to your community or do you find that is that easier for your community since it's coming from you? Gosh, you know, I have found such a gr great solace in my my cohort um, and my PhD program. We're all going through similar struggles. And yeah, I do feel like it's easier for me to connect as someone that's coming from public health from being in the from being in the indigenous community, because I understand the struggles. I, I have um, the patience and the desire to build those relationships. Um, and I also come with a deep heartfelt belief that we have incredible strengths to build upon. Um, I think, you know, any of the health communication strategies that I've worked on or, or interventions have been strengths and asset based because um, you know, we faced all these 500 years of hardships, of oppression, of war, of epidemics, um, but we've survived those. Um, you know, we've had, we have the ability to, to, um, to lean on one another, to lean on our communities, to look for our cultural connections, to look for our connections with the, the natural environment. And um, we have a lot of tools, um, our yeah, our family structures are so beautiful and our stories and our um, other cultural ways. And that just adds to our resilience. And so I think um, that respect and understanding really uh, does help me connect with a lot of my indigenous public health um, stakeholders. No, I love that. I love that. Um, as you're is there are there any new things as you're going through this program, getting your PhD and just doing just doing really great things? Are there things that you're learning that you're like, man, I didn't I didn't know this about, you know, coming from your your background and from your experiences? What are some new new things you're learning? Are there challenges that you're that you're now realizing that are big challenges for your community that you never really recognized before? Uh, well, I think I'm really excited going through this program because I do recognize that uh, now more than ever, there's just such this movement and this desire for research uh, not to just be done on Native communities or with Native communities, but mm. by Natives, by Native researchers. And I'm just part of this whole scene that I that I knew was there, but um, I didn't really know um all the different areas of influence that Native researchers are having. Um, and it's just really exciting. But I think one thing we all share is this demand for data sovereignty and this man demand for mm. data governance. So, um, you know, all of us researchers can't do what we do without without data. And um, so I think we need to really partner with Western scientists to make sure they understand the importance of that. Um, some of the other exciting developments that I'm learning about is uh, integrated care, where it is this blend in this, uh, what we uh, hear a lot about in my program is two-eyed seeing, um, where we're, you know, seeing our traditional and our cultural ways of knowing and ways of being and, and um, scientific insights blended with the Western way. And I think that healthcare um, is starting to embrace that integrated care as well. There's a lot of curiosity about it and learning that's happening. Um, the South Central Foundation in um, Alaska is 
developing a lot of policies and best practices um, in their NUCA system of care and UKA. Um, and, you know, I work with a lot of um, Native health institutions who are interested and are actually headed up to Alaska to, to do site visits and learn about that and think about how they can bring that back to their own communities. So that's something that's, um, you know, really exciting in the future of Indigenous health. No, that's very, very cool. And actually, that was my next question, talking about the future of Indigenous health. Um, when, when, if we kind of talk about a little bit more about the the, the data aspect sure. of, you know, because from what from what I hear is, if we don't have the right data, how can we take care of our people? Right. Right. So, what are there things that are currently happening that are that you're seeing are getting better within uh, improving that research and that data, or is there still a ways to go? You know, I one of the exciting movements that is happening as well is some uh, several tribes are establishing their own internal institutional review boards. So some of the IRBs are being established with the cooperation of uh, not only the tribe, but sometimes that's managed by the tribal college that may be in that community. So I think um, us setting our boundaries that you will not come in here, researcher, and work with our people without us being involved with it from the, from the get-go and making sure that, um, you know, the whole principles of do no harm and, and, mm, um, you know, mm-hmm. protecting the interests of, of the, the subjects. There's a movement to call, uh, you know, the NUCA system of care refers to the, uh, you know, patients as actually customers. And then there's also a movement to um, call patients and research subjects um, relatives. So if we see Mm. patients and research subjects as relatives, then we're going to naturally treat them with respect. Yeah, I always thought calling patients patients was just very cold. Yeah, I, I, I never, I never liked it. But that's just that's the language that that's at the hospital. Yeah, you know that people use. I've never liked it, but I'm glad there's. I'm, I'm gonna start that trend here. Just I got that from Jennifer. We're gonna start some. <laughs> start calling relatives. Make sure it's a relative you like, not that. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't have that one relative in mind when you're saying that word yeah somebody that i rock with exactly <laughs> exactly <Your favorite movie. laughs> yes yes I, that's that is it that is it um so it's not it it sounds like the future of uh native health is is on the rise and there are great people doing great things are there disparities what are some of the current disparities that you're that you're working on or some things that people um, need to know, or are there, are there certain health issues that uh, you're working on currently with the people that you, that you support? Gosh, I'm working on health communications in general, trying to determine who are these, you know, who do uh, Native Americans trust? Um, What there's a principle of homophily, being able to um, see yourself in like whether it's a piece of art or a health message or, or whatever, we respond better when we see ourselves in in what we're looking at or what we're hearing. So how can we um, establish that homophily and health messages? Um, and 
But some of my cohorts are cohort members are studying things like um, substance abuse and ways to integrate uh, traditional healing and practices into um, treating substance abuse. I think that's really exciting. And then also um, different ways of looking at suicide. But as I mentioned, with the Native American youth um, uh, experiencing such a high rate, three and a half times higher than the national average. That is just, you know, that's a crisis. Um, but are there ways that we can look back at our culture to think about what is happening with um, Native Americans who are, um, you know, have suicidal ideation? Might that be, you know, as I've heard from um, somebody from a different tribe, uh, they in their cultural tradition, when someone's going through that change of life um, and that big transition and, and adolescence, that is a time when they are hearing things from possibly the spirit world or, um, you know, hearing the things back from their ancestors. And, you know, that may be scary for them and that may make them think about maybe their places in that other world. So um, if we looked at uh, adolescence as that sacred time in a, in a teen's life and help, help, help them understand that if they're feeling depressed, if they're feeling hopeless, it's, it's a natural um, time in their life because they're starting to um, think about their path forward. And it's difficult to think about embracing your role as a leader, um, but um, helping them understand traditionally how those change of life um, and coming of age uh, ceremonies happen where we acknowledge that sacred time in their life and how uh, it's natural for them to have these strong feelings and and um Fear that fear is a is a natural partner to bravery, and um, you know thinking about different cultural ways to to view this stage of their life and where they're going, and maybe possibly giving them more hope. Awesome! That's amazing. That's amazing, um, Jennifer. Thank you so much for your time uh, and being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciated sure. it. Um, for those that are listening that want to learn more about you, learn more about the uh, Mosaic Project, uh, where can they find you and where can they reach out? Yeah, uh, projectmosaicllc.com is my website. Um, I'm also on Twitter on Project Mosaic CO and Instagram on Project Mosaic LLC. Oh, the other thing I did want to mention, I don't know if you want to shoehorn it in at the end here or yeah, it back it. in. But the other exciting movement that is happening is that of the food sovereignty movement, um, making sure that people have access to their traditional um, foods and medicines in their own community um, and sharing oh. those resources um, and bringing that back. Because I, you know, as I mentioned, we've had such drastic changes from our traditional diet that have led to heart disease and diabetes and all of these other sorts of, um, of diseases. And so if we can look back to the way we were meant to eat and increase our access to those foods where, um, you know, some of these reservation communities are food deserts, um, then we can improve our health. Yeah. So how does that work? Like, is that through a, a organization or, or how is that? How's that working? It is sparking up in clusters across the country. But First Nations Development Institute um, has a program called Natives and um, it's Native American traditional I don't know, 
something or other. Yeah. <laughs> May 5th is with an F, though. Um, okay. And uh, they are doing um, grants and to uh, community-led programs. But there are some really excited things, exciting things going on. Uh, there's a group called Fast Blackfeet that I've worked with before um, in the Blackfeet community in Montana. There is Dream of Wild Health that's happening in the Twin Cities. They have a 30-acre farm, and they uh, they grow foods and they distribute food boxes to elders and and um, schools where there's a lot of Native Americans in the Twin Cities, um, and just doing some job training and the it's it's amazing they they are doing really cool things in the twin cities oh very cool very cool yeah and i'll definitely make sure that i uh put a link to that native you said uh it's first nations development institute first and i can i can email it to you later Um, yeah i'll make sure i put the link in the in the description yeah yeah and then the other uh one of the couple of the programs to take a look at are fast black feet and um, Dream of Wild Health. Those are both two of my favorites. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I'll make sure I, I have those linked. Um, and it sounds like people can, can connect with you at your website or any other places where people, if they wanted to connect with you, where can they reach you? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Instagram, Twitter are probably the best ways or my website. My website has a contact form. Awesome. Perfect. Jennifer, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, and everybody, thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I'll let you next time.